Hi, and welcome back to Hash It Out. We're your co-hosts, Courtney Duff and Judith Adabil. Hi, I'm Judith, and we're going to talk about sexual education today. This is really one of my passion topics. So my first internship the summer after my freshman year mm -hmm. was actually with the Planned Parenthood of Indiana Department for Sexuality Education. That's cool. This is a great topic to tackle today, especially since Indiana lacks improper sex ed. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's actually why I suggested the title, Where Do I Turn? Indiana really lacks resources and we don't even require that schools teach medically accurate information. Yeah, we really need to start teaching proper sex education in schools, especially since we know people who are properly educated with the right tools do way better at life. And that's, that's the problem. Everyone needs proper information and resources, and not just the so-called normative populations right. like cisgender or straight people. That's a big reason why we're going to be covering such topics like comprehensive sexual education and healthcare access today. So many people don't know anything about normal sexual development and the variations of sexuality and gender. That's one of the reasons I think this episode is really important. Because of my background in sexuality education, mm -hmm. I learned a lot of information and resources when I was about 18 or 19 in that right. internship. I'm 24 now, but I still have adults I'm talking late 30s, early 40s, actual grown people with jobs and kids who come to me and ask things like, is my child normal? Is what they're doing okay? Mm -hmm. It's like they have so many questions about sexual development and how to properly discuss these issues with kids of different ages, but no one offers some resources. Right, plus kids, they themselves need a source of information. Absolutely. So since we're headed there already, why don't you go ahead and define comprehensive sexuality education for our listeners? Okay, cool. So for those who don't know, comprehensive sex ed is age-appropriate, medically accurate information on a range of sexual topics. Essentially, it teaches abstinence and birth control, discusses variations in sexuality and gender, and has modules about healthy relationships and consent. With that though, when looking at what currently passes as sex ed, why do you think it's still so heterocentric? I think a big part of it is that our education's inherently heterocentric, mainly because of religious influence. Okay. So I have a question. Okay, go ahead. Have you ever seen a gay couple holding hands on a PowerPoint slide that wasn't explicitly about homosexuality? Like in a basic sociology course okay. that discusses relationship formation. Have you ever seen a depiction of a same-sex relationship in a generic context? Nope. See, that's the thing. A sexuality educator I worked under at Planned Parenthood once told me, everybody's in the audience. Okay. Most people who legislate abstinence-only education are doing so from this like Christian-centric moral point of view. Mm -hmm. And largely, those moral perspectives exclude gay people, trans people, really anyone non-Christian, or anybody whose moral compass doesn't disclude premarital sex, essentially. Okay. But we know statistically that everyone is in the audience. So, going with a 30-student classroom, it will contain by proportion at least one trans person. And if gay people are 10% of the population, which is kind of a conservative estimate, mm -hmm. three kids in that 30-person classroom are gay. But the dominant moral structure that's anti-gay, transphobic, and even Christian-centric really intentionally excludes anyone who doesn't fit into their perception of, quote-unquote, socially acceptable. Right. And then they argue against the quote-unquote, gotta verbally say that, gay agenda, okay? <laughs> the Christian values in our sexuality education are there by design, and one of their motivations for including the Christian curriculum is to warp society into their idea of a good nation, which has no room for non-hetero, transgender, or otherwise quote-unquote deviant people of society. <laughs> This is usually called abstinence-only education. Right. Education that most of us have probably gone through, where you sit down in your health classroom, an older Christian woman comes in that the school had to fund because that's what the legislation says, and she says things like that mean girl scene. Don't have sex, you'll die. Or even at my school, one of the things was, if you wouldn't do it in front of your parents, you shouldn't do it at all. My parents don't like, do it in front of me, and they do it. And I was well, like, well, I mean, they don't, but like in theory, I have to come <laughs> from somewhere. Exactly, and it's like, wait, I don't really like holding hands or even kissing in front of my parents, let alone making out. Right. Does that mean I can't kiss my boyfriend? Right. So, <laughs> what data do we have about abstinence education? Judith? Right. Absolutely. So. 
Abstinence-only programs are geared to pre prevent teens and sometimes any person who's unmarried of from engaging in any sexual activity, okay? And something I find really interesting is that since the year 1998, okay, I was so, like five, right? I was one. Oh, God. <laughs> Over $1.5 billion in state and federal funds has been allocated for these abstinence only and abstinence only until marriage education programs. Whoa. Right. So the claim is that research shows that abstinence only education delays sexual in initiation and reduces teen pregnancy. Okay. But what does the actual data say? <laughs> but in reality, okay, in reality, abstinence-only education programs are not effective at delaying the initiation of sexual activity or in reducing teen pregnancy. So in 2007, a federally funded evaluation of four abstinence-only education programs showed people in the program did not delay sexual initiation or have fewer sexual partners or abstain entirely from sex. Worse off, these programs have showed some negative impacts on youth and their willingness to use contraception, including condoms, Whoa. okay, to prevent n negative sexual health outcomes related to sexual intercourse. So they're not being taught what they should or shouldn't do. They're not even, my thing is even if your, your school is Christian based, having health care, like having a health or comprehensive sexual ed to me doesn't mean that you're being against your religion. Absolutely. It's just about knowing what's out there so that once you do engage in that, you know what you should or shouldn't do. Yeah, like, totally. Use a condom. Yeah, I think it's really absurd to look at really any kind of abstinence-only sexuality education, looking at that type of data. Right. It doesn't do what it's meant to do. The federally funded research programs have shown that. And they're still getting more money. That's my thing. Like, yeah. it doesn't look like they're getting like defunded in any aspect. I Not wanna at know. All. I want to know, like, maybe instead of taking this 1.5 billion right. to educate these people on abstinence only, they take that 1.5 billion and give it to all those people who became teen pregnant, teen moms and teen dads because they right. didn't have the adequate education. Like, somebody needs to take care of little Jimmy. Jimmy would not be in this world if Mama know, knew how to use a condom. Exactly, and that's one of the most important things for equity, even. Right. One of the most interesting things I've been reading about lately, I've been reading a lot about environmental justice, but one of the cool things that I've been reading, I am staunchly child-free, don't want kids, mm -hmm. I want a sterilization, we've talked about this at length. <laughs> but the thing is, one of my reasons for not wanting children is knowing that to reduce the impact that I will have on climate change and the global uh, system is, if I don't have children, that's the single biggest thing I can do to improve the state of our earth. And you can always adopt. There's always children out there who don't have families. Exactly. So there are a lot of options out there related to, do you want kids, do you not want kids? Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing to me is that population control is obviously not an easy thing to navigate. Right. We know that the first hint of a eugenic type program is going to disproportionately target minorities, mm -hmm. disabled people, people that society deems unfit. Right. But just by educating girls about birth control options, condoms, mm -hmm. any type of sexuality education, we know that that reduces the risk of teen pregnancy, accidental pregnancy. The vast majority of women do go on to have children. Right. But when they're given comprehensive sex ed, they go on to have children in their 30s when they're more prepared to have children right. and can raise them stable. well. Exactly. It's like, do you want a 16-year-old mom who isn't mature enough to even, you know, take care of themselves yet exactly. and taking care of a child? Or do you want an older parent, say in their 20s or early 30s, who is financially stable, ha they have their own home, they're mature. They do can, you want that teen mom yeah. to be able to finish high school to go to college? Emotional stability is m more important, if anything, yes. than financial stability because are they emotionally stable at that point in their lives to be exactly. able to take care of someone else's emotional needs? To take care of a kid in a thoughtful way even, True. to parent well, to not take out anger or aggression on the child. Right. And so really, what we're saying, all of it comes down to the fact that comprehensive sex ed, it's the evidence-based choice. Right. And a lot of people think, why are we encouraging kids to have sex or something like that? But the problem is that comprehensive sex ed isn't the antithesis of abstinence-only ed. Right. It incorporates abstinence as one of the best choices for preventing pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections. Yes, and I like um, these sex ed 
courses are like showing pornography and they're like exactly go right ahead have all the fun you want no it's just to educate you on if you are gonna do it yes like, it's the best of both right. worlds if you get, it mixes it all together yes you get the education of an abstinence only program where they tell you about real consequences like I remember the data being around 2014 I read a study that college students who had an accidental pregnancy their freshman year of college were like 80% dropping out of college. Crap. So telling students having an accidental pregnancy will change your life. Right. But giving them the tools to prevent that pregnancy beyond not having sex. Right. Honestly, the data shown that Conference of Sex Ed is, it's actually just more effective right. at what abstinence purports to do. So abstinence education is supposedly to make kids not have sex, have fewer partners, not mm -hmm. engage in that activity at all. Right. But like you said, that data doesn't pan out. Right. Comprehensive sex ed, though, it does delay the likelihood for youth to engage in sex, mm -hmm. minimizes the chances of abortion, and minimizes the chance of accidental pregnancy. Okay. It in no way encourages kids to have sex, but it makes them far safer when they do decide that they're ready. Right. All I'm saying is, I watched a movie about a girl who got gonorrhea when what? I was... Yeah, it was a weird movie. The YouTube days in the early, mid-2000s were weird. Okay, I thought this was like in one of your sex ed classes, and I was no, like, girl, where no. did you go to school? <laughs> this movie made me scared to want to have sex because I learned what gonorrhea was and what it could do if you went untreated. Absolutely. Guess what? I'm still not having sex. See, I'm educated. The <laughs> that's the thing. If we educate ourselves about all of the options, all of the risks, you can make an informed decision. Tying back into our first episode, Discrimination right. in the Doctor's Office, it's about informed consent. All about educating yourself. Exactly. If you know the risks, alternatives, everything that goes into it, you can make the decision, do I have sex right now? Right. If I don't have sex right now, cool. But if I do want to have sex, what kind of birth control options are available? Right. I do want to ask you, though, why is it we don't implement comprehensive sex ed? Okay. This is where it gets a lot trickier, and it's more based okay. on kind of the sociocultural cool. uh, yeah, issues right. at the time. So um, I know that most funding goes into abstinence-only programs, but I did read somewhere that 80% of Americans support comprehensive sex ed. So what keeps it from being mandated? You're exactly right. Advocates for Youth has a lot of data, as well as the Guttmacher Institute, showing that overwhelmingly Americans want comprehensive sex ed to be legally mandated to be taught in schools. The problem is that there's momentum mm -hmm. behind the abstinence-only education. So think about the 80s and 90s when these laws about funding for abstinence-only education only and comprehensive sex ed not getting any funding. Think about the time frame when those laws started coming into play. So it was only in 1981 that America first diagnosed a patient with AIDS. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, we obviously know that it existed long before 1981 but that was the first time America acknowledged that we had an AIDS patient in our country. Okay. If you've talked to people who grew up in the 80s, like my mom was born in 1970. She was coming into her teen years, her adolescence in the 80s, and AIDS was terrifying to her generation. Right. When Princess Diana shook the hand of a man with AIDS without wearing a glove, it was massive news right. because people honestly believed that touching people with AIDS would give you AIDS. What is this, leprosy? Right? Even Ryan White, a student in Indiana who got AIDS through a blood transfusion yeah. as a child, he was kicked out of schools. Yeah, I've seen the movies. I've seen the history on that. Absolutely. And it's terrifying, but that's what was going on in the 80s. And then in 1991, Susan Faludi published Backlash. Okay. That's a book about how artificial constructs had been built to shame women okay. by decrying the progress that feminism had made just so that they could portray the women who had careers and children or didn't marry, things like that. It portrayed them as unhappy old maids. Okay. And Backlash traced how the media and people had intentionally built that idea. So that was the 90s. So a big part of it is also, unfortunately, Conference of Sex Ed advocates, they didn't take abstinence-only education proponents seriously. Okay. No one thought we'd get to where we are today. So bottom line, Abstinence programs were put into place as a reaction mm -hmm. to the increasing equity and visibility of women, queer people, trans people. It wasn't a proactive measure to help anybody. 
basically what you're saying is if you're going to become an advocate, take your opponent seriously. I think we learned that lesson last year. Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then do you think there's any way to compromise with the advocates of abstinence-only education? Honestly, no. Okay. I, I think the problem is that abstinence-only education is completely founded in religion. Okay. It's a moral and religious value okay. to be abstinent until marriage. The problem is that I don't think education should ever be limited by religion. Mm -hmm. I think we should teach things like evolution right. and allow students to get their religious education elsewhere. Right, that's what church and going to the synagogue or going to the mosque is for if you really think exactly. about it. Or being at home. We Your religious compass is at home. Yes. We shouldn't be giving religious education in schools that is intentionally designed to make these kids religious. I have no problem with comparative world religion classes, with studying the Bible even. Right. As long as it's not geared specifically towards creating in these children a religious perspective that they wouldn't have had otherwise. It's like, unless you're a religious-based school, why should, be, why should we be using religion to teach students about sex ed? Exactly. I, I don't think youth having sex should be a debate in education at all. Right. Because we're not banning education about literature because they might get into Nabokov books. What is that? He's the dude who wrote Lolita. Give it's a what? book from the perspective of a pedophile. Oh. He is a famous world-renowned author. Okay. Who, he was a Russian dude who wrote Lolita. He's famous. Anyway. For anyone, obviously you can't see me, but I gave her a look because I was like, I don't know what she's, Lolita is. Yeah, <laughs> she's pretty distraught. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I, <laughs> We don't limit education based on any other risk factors. We don't right. not teach kids how to swim because we don't want them to go in the ocean. And we don't want them to drown. Exactly. Right. We, we give them life teach jackets. children, though, that dry drowning is a real thing. Different yeah. topic for a different day, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you think? So, personally, I believe that we need to stop refusing to educate youth because of the fact that we fear that they might become sexually active. Absolutely. Right? We're in total agreement. Right. With the exception of asexual people, sexuality is a healthy component of any adult's life. And setting youth up to fail as adults is unfair. If we teach them now, they'll know what to do when they're ready. It's not if, it's when. Exactly. Like you said, with the exception of asexual people who don't have sexual attraction or any desire to engage in sex, everybody's going to have sex. Right. You can't stop that from happening. And you Unless you're a nun. People. See, there are exceptions for celibacy. True. Okay. For asexual or celibate people, <laughs> sexuality is not going to necessarily be a massive component of their lives. Right. They still need to be educated about reproductive functions. Nuns need to know if their menstrual cycles are normal. Right. But you're right. Everyone else is going to have sex someday. Yeah. And they need to be prepared. In science and math classes, students can trust that they're being given facts. But sex ed can, it can be mandated to be based entirely on opinion. I so mean. like I said, a big part of comprehensive sex ed is teaching students medically accurate information. Okay. So even though that does get talked about, I've noticed it talked about in other feminist circles, I've never noticed anyone talking about how abortion and contraceptive access ties into that. So even though we want to minimize the amount of abortions, we need to acknowledge that it has to be an option. And the information given to youth about the procedure needs to be legitimate and not pseudoscience. That's the thing. Abortion discussions are kind of dominated by opinions rather than facts, even on the pro-choice side. Okay. Because the problem is that everybody has their own understanding mm -hmm. because we don't teach the scientific basis. Right. But even just looking at the actual lived experiences relating to abortion, did you know that one in three women will have an abortion in their lifetime? Or even that the majority of abortion patients are already parents. These are the types of facts that I think need to be taught when we're in these mm -hmm. abortion debates because some people get abortions because they know they can't afford another child and they don't want to deprive the children that they already have. And that's so important. One of the things that always gets me is that anti-abortion people tend to claim they're pro-family. Right. It especially gets tied up when, with the weird idea that being anti-gay is pro-family as well. Dang. If you are pro-family, wouldn't you want a woman to be able to take care of the children she already has? Right. We could go for all day about that. Yeah. 
But <laughs> we also have to make sure that youth are aware that abortion is a safe medical procedure. Yeah. We need to talk about the actual scientific basis for abortion, not talking about Bible verses that kind of sort of suggest or imply that fetuses have souls. And I, I think, but I do think we need to address some of the common misconceptions, especially like who legislates abortion access. Right. So in criminal justice courses, because if you don't know, I'm gonna get a bachelor's of science in criminal justice. Yes. So we talk about issues like abortion access as a federally mandated right that states can build upon. So basically yeah. when we're looking at our courses in criminal justice, this is just a basis for everyone to understand. Mm -hmm. The federal government can create a mandate so the P Supreme Court can make a decision like Roe v. Yeah. Wade, then the states can build upon that. But the yeah. states cannot give you less rights than the federal government. Okay, so I really like that explanation. and. I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of Roe v. Wade, but I've noticed that a lot of people don't know much about it. Do you want to clarify? Yeah, I can. I do all, right. this all day. <laughs> <laughs> so Roe v. Wade, okay, was a landmark decision in 1973 by the U.S. Supreme Court um, on the issue of abortion, okay? So it allowed for legal access for abortions before the third trimester, and it ended the criminalization of women who sought abortions. Okay. But there was another case that kind of started heralding this kind of issue okay. in 1965, so before Roe v. Wade, by some years, um, that was Griswold v. Connecticut. So that's where the Supreme Court ruled that a state's ban on the issue of contraceptives violated the right to marital privacy. The case concerned a Connecticut law that criminalized the encouragement or use of birth control. Yeah, I think that Griswold v. Connecticut is also a very interesting mm -hmm. one because that ties a lot into how birth control became accessible. Mm -hmm. I think we might have talked a little bit about Margaret Sanger, but everyone knows that she, like most people at the time, said some pretty messed up stuff. Everybody's raced a little bit. Just and some of her quotes that anti-abortionists used to kind of promote this idea of her as evil is actually her quoting W.B. Du Bois. Everybody's so, got some, some things in their closets. Everybody got a skeleton. Exactly. <laughs> and okay, I like Du Bois a lot. But we do have to acknowledge the time frame. True, that's what I always like to say about history. Yes, we have to acknowledge the context of what was going on. It's like Mahatma Gandhi was a great man, but <sighs> whew, he got some things that he said that just... Like his letters did. to Hitler and sleeping in bed with his nieces. See, I knew about the nieces, but not the letters to Hitler. Yeah. That's let's a whole not other, even mm. address <laughs> Okay. And that's the thing. So people <laughs> like Margaret Sanger were, they basically built a pop-up birth control clinic. Right. Let women come get their birth control, and then the state would tear them down. Also, the fact that I remember something in history where they're like, if you mailed contraceptives, that was like a federal, yes. it was like against some sort of federal law because it was, what, it was indecent? Or... Yeah, it was like classified under like the obscenity laws. Yeah, so basically they're saying like if you send birth control through the mail, it's the same as sending porn through exactly. the mail. I'm like, yeah. what? And now Planned Parenthood has the We Deliver service where you can get your birth control delivered to your door. Plug oh. for Planned Parenthood. Um, if you need birth control, but you can't go to the store. Exactly. <laughs> it's like a, that iContacts.com website yes, or whatever. Yes, absolutely. And that's the thing about Griswold v. Connecticut is that it was a Planned Parenthood director named Griswold. Okay. Who was charged by Connecticut for the encouragement of birth control. I think it's, it's a little ridiculous because birth control wasn't a new topic in 1965. But 1965 was when married couples were allowed to use birth control because of this court case. Oh, because the whole thing, like, marriage is all about procreation. Right. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And with the federal regulations, like the Supreme Court decisions we're talking about, mm -hmm. it basically means that there is a standard level of access that all states must adhere to. And some states do opt to build on those rights. Others create limitations that technically don't violate the spirit of Roe v. Wade, yeah. but there are a lot that have gone through the court system because they do. Yeah, for instance, it kind of hits on, like, Texas. Um, yes. They've created all these laws, like, a a, an abortion clinic has to have a certain wide amount of space in They're their hallway. They're called trap laws. Um, they can't be on this amount of land. Like yes. The grass has to be three inches or some they, weird laws. Yeah. That's ridiculous. They intentionally force all of these tiny little regulations into play. So 
for example, the Planned Parenthood Clinic on the south side of Indianapolis on Hannah Avenue is the clinic I've gone to for birth control most of my life. Right. I have recently started going to the Midtown Clinic as well, but the Southside Clinic was under danger of being shut down because their hallway wasn't wide enough. Like, what do you need a wide hallway for? And the thing is, the Southside <laughs> Clinic doesn't provide abortions at all. Which, that's the thing I feel like people are consistently like, when we're looking at the topic of Planned Parenthood, yes. they forget that Planned Parenthood does so much more. Like, abortions is I a think tiny, it's like 20% of the it's, it's a services tiny perc- they provide. Yeah, it's a tiny percentage of what they actually do. They provide birth cancer control. screening, birth yes. control. And it's not even just cancer screening for women. It's cancer screening for anyone Absolutely. who wants to come in. And a ton of clinics also provide hormone replacement therapy for trans people. So it's like, They are a why? reproductive... Health hormone. center? Yes. They, it's like a, they, they do more than just abortion. So why yes. are you consistently trying to defund a company or organization who is going out of their way to try to help not to help everyone it's exactly. not it's not um pigeonholing anyone yes like, and when they make attempts to defund Planned Parenthood they always claim other providers will take up the slack when Planned Parenthood is gone no they won't most of the legislators who submit these bills that say well if we get rid of Planned Parenthood these 50 clinics can take over they include stuff like dentists am I going to go to a dentist for a birth control prescription <laughs> I mean, I you could, so. but like, I don't, do they know what they should prescribe right? to you? Like, no. <laughs> so, but, yeah. So, Indiana, for example, because I used Texas earlier, Indiana, for example, has more limitations on abortion than many other states, which Correct. I found odd because right? I at least thought Texas was beating us, right? We're I actually hear more tied things from with Texas. Texas. Okay, at least we tied with them because right? I hear more things coming out of Texas when it comes to abortion than Indiana. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I think a big part of that is living in Indiana. True. We get national news and we do hear about our state, especially when Pence is being an idiot and everybody's mad at us. <laughs> but I've talked to Texans who are like, oh my God, Indiana is so backwards. And I'm like, what about your state? You know what? It's There's something wrong with bubble. our. It's something wrong with our media. Yep. It's, it's like that propaganda. We don't, we don't focus a lot on Indiana news, whereas we're Texas doesn't get focus out. a lot on them. That's true as well. <laughs> but, we're trying to learn about everybody else's stuff so we can leave and know right? their stuff. <laughs> yes. And in 2014, the level of restrictions were kind of varied, but mm-hmm. in 2014, Vermont had zero restrictions that added to the rights given by Roe v. Wade. Indiana had 13. We had 13 different types of restrictions on abortion access. Texas had 13 as well. The highest number of restrictions, by the way, was 14. We were one away from topping the list and sharing that title with such esteemed places as Kansas, (laughs) Mississippi, and Oklahoma. They're the only states who had more restrictions than us and they only beat us by one. Not to talk bad about Kansas or Mississippi or Oklahoma. But, but oh my Kansas, God. Mississippi, and Oklahoma. <laughs> okay? We yeah. almost tied with Kansas, Mississippi, and Oklahoma. I gotta say it one more time because yes. it's ridiculous. Kansas, Mississippi, and Oklahoma. And people genuinely think we're somehow progressive. No. 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 The only good thing about Indiana is our lo- low cost of living. Also, I do <laughs> really like corn. Not gonna lie. Not, mm, corn is good. So... Like I repeated Kansas, Mississippi, and Oklahoma for like yeah. four times, our state is pretty high up there on the ridiculous ridiculousness that is taking away rights yes. of women given to us by Roe v. Wade. Absolutely. So Indiana specifically has three notable restrictions. Okay. The first is a mandatory waiting period. Mm-hmm. The second is a parental notification requirement for minors. And third, a ban on abortion after the first trimester not performed in hospitals. So basically they're trying to financially pigeonhole you with the whole hospital thing. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So a parental notification law basically requires that any minor who's seeking an abortion has to get permission from their parent. Yeah. So what do you think about that type of restriction? So I know a lot of people argue that it's necessary because minors have to get permission for any other type of health care. They technically don't have, they technically cannot give consent. But let me stop you there real quick. Don't laws have the power to force parents to give their child medical treatment even if it goes against their religious belief? Yes and no. I think it also yeah. depends. A lot of it is state by state. True, yeah. 
So absolutely. For example, even though I have kind of conflicted on that, yeah. I know, for instance, Jehovah Witnesses don't believe in blood transfusions, but some courts have forced them to allow children to get life-saving medical treatment. Yeah, it's not consistent across the board. Right. There, and that's how it is in America. No two states are ever going to have the exact same laws on the books. Make it a whole lot simpler. Right. But... <laughs> Some courts have forced people like Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Scientists, and other prayer-based healing groups right. to make sure that their kids get life-saving medical treatment. It's like if I break my leg and it's like horrible, like I believe in the power of prayer just as much as everyone. Absolutely. Maybe a little bit less actually. But, but if I have a completely fractured like, I don't know, tibia or something, I don't know the bones in the body. I don't know either. But, Prayer isn't going to fix that. Exactly. If we're even going to use the concept of religion, God created doctors, right? So right? if he created doctors, wouldn't he want you to pray for medical intervention? Yes. And that prayer that you give off is the doctor, like, receiving that prayer from God and fixing your broken leg? I totally get that. It's like a So cycle. why is abortion different? Girl, why? I don't know. <laughs> I would say mostly because of the anti-abortion rhetoric that claims abortion is dangerous or that it's a form of murder, right? They believe minors need to be educated about the risk of an abortion and that if they aren't mature enough to make the decision, their parents need to make the decisions for them. Hold up. Did you just say that their argument is that minors need to be mature enough to make the decision? Yeah. But there's no requirement to prove a minor's mature enough to have a child. Exactly. Having a child is life-changing, obviously. Right? You can't reverse having a child. Right, you can't. You, once, once they leave your vaginal canal, you can't put them back in. Exactly. But if you have an abortion, you can still have children later. You can still yeah. have biological children or adopt. I always find it ridiculous when people are like, oh, yeah, if you get an abortion, like you're not, that's going to harm you, <sighs> harm your body, so we then you can't have that's children not later. true. Which is, my thing is, I'm tired of people not playing fair with facts. Exactly. Like That's the what makes pictures mad. of 24, 25 week fetuses being told, yeah, those are nine week fetuses. That's what you're aborting. No, they don't look like that. It's like, please stop basing everything on fear. Exactly. Base it on facts. And if you, if someone agrees with you morally, then they'll do what you want them to do. But why are we consistently trying to, not we, but yeah. why is the anti-abortion, pro-life, or should I say pro-birth exactly. rhetoric all about fear? So absolutely, the inherent assumption is that having children is the default while having an abortion is the alternative. This is a little bit off topic, but okay. to me, it is mind-blowing that our default is having kids. It, to me, it seems like it should be opt-in rather than opt-out, mm -hmm. you know? like. Having children's an irrevocable life change. That's right. all there is to it. Yeah, it's it's a perversive idea that changes how adults' lives go, too. Totally. And, yeah, there are a lot of restrictions that harm youth, but they harm adults, too. Right. So mandatory waiting periods, for example, they can make it difficult for anyone to get an abortion. Right. And I think something that, um, to go off topic a little bit, is yeah. that especially if we're going through how our society views women and we, we, as a society, view pregnancies. We're, we already have enough a hard time trying to get lower health care because yes. apparently, being a woman is a what's the term of pre-existing pre condition. condition. It's already expensive to be a woman. And then if I go to work and I'm like, hey, I'm pregnant. There's that right? whole, you never know, like, they could find a reason to fire you. They can't, Legally, yes. they can't, but we hear they these stories all the time. They can Right. So they don't want you to get an abortion, but they want you to have a child. But, but they, they turn around and they're same people who won't keep you on because they don't want to pay for that. And they don't want to give you maternity leave. Exactly. Like, why is it as a first world country, we, we pride ourselves on being first world, being the best, I don't, 100% believe that. Yeah. But we have the least amount of um, health care, the least yep. amount of vacation yep. time, and the least amount of maternity slash paternity leave. Absolutely. But then we advocate for maternal connection with children. My mom was at Purdue at the time, yeah. and she was TAing. She was getting a master's, so she wasn't like a young yeah. mother. But um, she had me spring break of 1997, okay. Thursday, March 13th, for anyone who wants to say happy birthday. <laughs> and she went back to TA and working in that Monday. Yeah. I was literally, the first week of my life, I was taken care of by my brother at the time who was yep. 15 years old. My mom <laughs> went back to a factory. Oh, Lord. Yes. 
and was working immediately thereafter. That sounds painful. Um, yeah. But I do have a question that related back to um, basically like abortion clinics and everything. Do you know how many abortion clinics we even have in the state of Indiana? So I know only four of our Planned Parenthood clinics provide okay. abortions. If the current listings are correct, I believe there's also two independent clinics. Okay. Hospitals are able to provide abortions, but none of them are specifically abortion providers. Okay. And typically, you'd only go to the hospital for an abortion if you were further than the first trimester or you had serious complications right. that you needed immediate like care. Okay. So how far away from each other are they in the state? So like. Are there, is there like one in the region, which I know some people hate that term, like one in the yeah. south, so, one on the east and west, and they're just like, and then none in the city or something? Or? The independent clinics are both about 15 minutes from IUPUI, okay. but in opposite directions. Okay, that's good. You don't want them next door to each right. other. <laughs> the Planned Parenthood clinics are thankfully more spread out. So there's one within 30 minutes of campus, okay. one in Bloomington, okay. and one in both Maryville and Lafayette. Okay. Let's examine this through the lens of like, Let's say a woman in Evansville. Okay. So the closest Planned Parenthood that provides abortions is in Bloomington. That's a two-hour drive. You have to travel there, and as part of the mandatory waiting period, you have to be provided information that isn't actually true. Wait 18 hours, and then you can have an abortion. So can let's say... Can you get say, that information over the phone? No. You have to get it in person because they also have to provide you a chance to look at the ultrasound and hear the fetus's heartbeat. Oh, is that how anything to do with the um, uh, vaginal ultrasound that yes. they started forcing on women? They're completely unnecessary, but they have become mandated, not in Indiana, thankfully, okay. but in a lot of other states. A congresswoman who wanted to talk about that brought a vaginal ultrasound wand to Congress. Oh, I think I saw that somewhere. Yeah. It made big news because she was trying to explain to her colleagues what a vaginal ultrasound requires. They kicked her off the floor for using words like vagina. Isn't that a medical term? Yeah. Yeah, it is. So we can talk about Viagra and penises all day. Absolutely. But a woman says vagina and she gets kicked off the floor? Yes. Okay. So that Evansville woman, she can't just get that information over the phone. She mm -hmm. has to travel at least two hours to Bloomington. Let's say she doesn't want to stay overnight. Mm -hmm. She travels two hours, has about an hour of an appointment with probably an hour total of waiting time between mm -hmm. filling out papers, doing post-discharge stuff, all of that. Mm -hmm. So that's another two hours. And then she has to drive two hours home, so that's six hours. She has to take that day off work. Yep. Then she has to go back the next day for a two-hour drive for a relatively quick procedure. Right. The time that it takes for an abortion really goes into the recovery period afterwards where they make sure that you're not dizzy, you're not having complications like a hemorrhage, and then they let you go home. Okay. Usually you have to be driven if you're under anesthesia, so then she has to get two hours back home. Okay. That's another day of missed work. Right. If she can't drive there and back, then drive there and back again, she has to drive there, stay overnight, so pay for lodging, and then drive back. So basically, you're missing two days of work. You have to navigate transportation. What if she doesn't have a car? And you have to make sure you won't get fired for missing work. Plus, you have to worry about childcare if you're a parent, mm -hmm. or you have to work, worry about missing class. Yeah, if you're a student. I know you said that the information that you're given at the pre-appointment isn't always true. What kind of things are they required to say? Because if Planned Parenthood is following federal laws, yeah. how are we giving, well, how is it ex like acceptable to be giving out false information? Exactly, and I wanna note, if a doctor lied to a man, he could be prosecuted. Okay. But abortion providers are legally forced to lie to women. So it's one of the ways that anti-abortionists get this agenda into healthcare. They, write the laws essentially. So some laws require that doctors tell their patients about risks and alternatives mm -hmm. to abortion. Many times based on information that's been proven untrue, like the debunked link between abortion and cancer. They also have to give spiels about the possibility of adoption. So they disregard all issues relating to adopted children, like the issues of whitewashing children of color, mm -hmm. the issues of feeling isolated from your community, mm -hmm. behavioral problems, all of that stuff. Sometimes being returned. Exactly. They paint it as this beautiful option right. that can also take care of your health care bills if the adoptive parents offer to pay for their care. That's literally things that Indiana abortion providers have to tell their patients. Mm -hmm. Literally, they have to say, and if your adoptive parents would like to, they can pay your health care bills. 
Okay. So that kind of ties into the ban on abortion clinics performing second tri uh, trimester abortions too, right? Absolutely. It's because, so the reason that second trimester abortions are required to be performed in a hospital is also based on lies. Mm -hmm. It's based on this idea that they're somehow unsafe or risky, but that's not the case. Second trimester abortions are just as safe as a first trimester surgical abortion, and there's no functional difference in how they can be performed. You specified surgical. What other options are there? There's only one. So the surgical abortion is a single procedure in which the fetal tissue is removed. Okay. That's sometimes called a DNC. Okay. But there's also the medical abortion, which is only effective for early pregnancies because it's essentially taking medication that induces a spontaneous abortion, which is the medical term for miscarriage. Uh -huh. And it can happen at home as long as you've been prescribed the medication. Okay. So if abortions are safe, there shouldn't be unnecessary restrictions. I absolutely agree. That's the problem. And I think that this ties into the issue of birth control. Absolutely. I know you wanted to discuss the Affordable Care Act mm -hmm. and its birth control provision. Yeah. So there's this big issue re uh, related to misinformation. Birth control is covered by insurance now as a preventative measure. Thank you, Obama. I, I mean, it literally <laughs> is preventative. He did the right thing because Yes, birth control prevents pregnancy, but that's not its only preventative right. use. It can be used to minimize symptoms of polycystic ovarian mm -hmm. syndrome or PCOS and endometriosis. Like, endometriosis is a buildup of tissue that literally, this is, it always grosses me out. Endometriosis tissue that builds up can literally cement your organs together. It's, and I've heard it's a horribly painful ordeal that birth control can help you literally you know prevent. navigate your life yes you can right Ex i agree exactly what you just said and birth control can be used to prevent different reproductive issues but the main focus in the public's eye is not subsidizing sexual activity even though it just means it's just a means of health care absolutely people ignore that the hyde amendment bans public funds from being used to provide abortions which is an issue in and of itself, especially relating to healthcare for Native Americans. Yeah, it, didn't the Hyde Amendment come out right after Roe v. Wade? Because basically, anti-abortionists <laughs> who were like, "Oh yeah, we got one for our team." Yep. <laughs> well, so like for Native Americans on reservations, they're at even more of a disadvantage for abortion yeah. access because of the Hyde Amendment, and that's kind of intentional. Which sucks because. Uh, isn't most of their funds coming from the federal government? Exactly. So Native Americans on reservations automatically get health care through the Indian Health Services, mm -hmm. but because it's federally funded, they can't get abortions there, which means they have to travel off their reservation. And the clinics, by and large, don't even stock things like Plan B and other emergency contraception. So there are a lot of myths about contraception or contraceptives that hurt youth and adults alike. There really is, especially with emergency contraception and you can look at where these myths started and how they got spread, and it happened intentionally to minimize the use of birth control so that women wouldn't take control of their bodies. Oh, like um, how if you were to use birth control or get an abortion, that causes infertility? Oh my God, yes. So like, you, you're born with eggs you got. I don't, exactly. I don't think using a diaphragm or something is going to make you lose all your eggs spontaneously. Right. I mean, some people might actually, you know, be wishing for that. No Me. eggs, no period. Yeah. <laughs> and it is an incredibly nuanced issue. Like, on one hand, mental health symptoms are often, like, hand-waved and just ignored by doctors. Mm -hmm. And those side effects haven't been reported nearly as widely as they should have been. I heard about this new study. It was for... Uh, male birth control, I got, I got so excited, but it collapsed because too many men dropped out because they couldn't handle the emotional side effects. Like what? Women have been dealing right. with this for decades. I remember <laughs> when the news first came out, I was like, oh, you're now suffering the things that made you call your girlfriend crazy. Oh my God, she's psychotic. It's her time of the month. She got fat. It's like, it's unfortunate, but that's what generally happens. Like the side effects aren't real until men say they're real. Right. There are other side effects, though, that are vastly overreported and used to scare women away from taking it. So what are the actual long-term impacts of birth control? As far as we know, pretty much nothing. Fertility isn't impacted unless in one specific case, which is using a hormonal IUD for over six and a half years. Okay. Most people are familiar with the Mirena IUD. That's the most popular hormonal version. Lasts for five years. So you'd get at least one replacement of the Mirena and keep that for a year and a half. Uh -huh. But even then, the difficulty lowers after a year post-removal. Basically, 
a woman who is trying to get pregnant has about a 60% chance to get pregnant within one year. Okay. We all know that pregnancy isn't just have sex while you're ovulating and you're good. It, right. It's a mixture of a lot of different functions. Exactly. There are a lot of tiny things that go into the regulation of when you'll get mm -hmm. pregnant. Women who used the Mirena IUD for six and a half years or more had about a 30% chance in the year post-removal. But after that, their levels returned to normal and they were just as likely as any other woman to get pregnant. Right. I think the most interesting case of how side effects are reported though, to me personally, is weight gain. Okay, so why? According to what we know, it actually isn't a thing. Really? Really, so I'm not discounting women's personal experiences. Because I do yeah. know that some women had unexplained weight gain. Mm -hmm. But by and large, studies have shown the women who start any hormonal option, so IUD, implant, pill, patch, or ring, okay. don't gain any more or less weight than women who start non-hormonal options like the copper IUD or barrier methods like the diaphragm or condom. Mm -hmm. The exception is the Depo-Provera shot. Okay. So it's associated with a 5% weight gain in about a quarter of the women who take it. By and large though, those like, 25% of women who mm -hmm. do gain weight are already overweight. Okay. So, for example, a woman who weighs 180 pounds when she starts Depo-Provera mm -hmm. will gain about nine pounds in the first six months of use. But the other 75% of users will only have about a single pound of weight gain. So just normal, I just ate a taco today. Exactly. <laughs> it literally, the most likely thing is that in a lot of cases, when you start birth control, it's because you're more comfortable and intimate with your partner. Okay. And you just don't maintain the same levels of healthy diet and exercise that you did before when you were constantly paranoid about looking perfect. To like, I'm comfortable now. You can't leave me. Exactly. Now we're having sex. We're at a good worst. place. <laughs> we're having fun. And we don't need to be perfect, tip-top shape all the time. Yeah. But if women are having any, you know, they still think that the misconception is correct. Yeah. For all you ladies who are listening to the podcast, don't forget there's a non-hormonal approach exactly and i would never look at a woman who said she had unexplained weight gain and say she's lying yeah everybody's bodies reacts differently yeah so for example the emotional side effects i have been on four different types of hormonal contraceptives depo provera nothing had no difference to my body while a couple of my friends who went on depo provera literally went like psychotic and scared themselves to the point of stopping the Depo-Provera shot. Because that has to also do with like your own body hormonal exactly. like, intake, like your thyroid has to yes. do with your weight gain and your metabolism, it so it's on all the individual yeah. person. Because like the NuvaRing, I became suicidal within three weeks of taking it. Oh my God. And I've been attending CAPS at IUPUI since I took the NuvaRing out and stopped using it. So um, if anyone from NuvaRing <laughs> is listening to this, Y'all need to fix something. Well, the thing is, I've <laughs> never met another woman who had that reaction to NuvaRing. Right. Maybe you were just allergic to one of the exactly. um, maybe, ingredients or something. Maybe the makeup of it just wasn't right for me. Yeah. But let's get back to the episode title. Where do I turn? That's the thing. I want everybody to know there are resources out there for them. We chose to do this episode, and I suggested the title because most people don't know where to turn. And what I want to do now is give everybody just a couple of resources that they might want to look at for sexuality education purposes, mm -hmm. to help them talk to the children in their lives about age-appropriate information and other stuff like that. So off the top of my head, a couple of websites I want to recommend. We'll have links to all of these in our recommended reading document that's linked below in the description. Always make sure to check them out. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Is the Sexuality Education and Information Council of United States, CECAS. Okay. So CECAS is kind of a board of people who try to promote sexuality education in schools. They mm -hmm. do studies, they look at evidence-based practices. Okay. I'd also recommend just browsing the Planned Parenthood website. So that's PlannedParenthood.org. It is so valuable. They have quizzes you can take where you, you tell them, well, I really want a secret method that I can have spontaneous sex using. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, okay, sounds like an IUD is perfect. Okay. And then you can explore your options on the website. You can also, in many cases, do online scheduling for appointments, so you don't even have to call them. Especially and if you're afraid of picking up your phone and making conversations. Like me. <laughs> <laughs> then you can also look at Scarletine. 
So it's Scarlet E-E-N. Okay. That's a website that is specifically geared towards teenagers who need medically accurate information. One of my favorite resources there actually talks about the misconceptions about the vaginal hymen. Okay. Which is what we assume to be an indicator of virginity. Which is a myth. Exactly. <laughs> and their page about, it's actually called the vaginal corona. Their page about that topic is so invaluable, and I think every teen should read it. And then I would also recommend looking at Advocates for Youth. Yep, they, good website. They have a very good mix of here's the information you need, and then here's how to effectively advocate for it. Yeah, there will be a link in the description. For Advocates for Youth, yeah, Planned and, Parenthood, yeah. all of it. And the Advocates for Youth, there's a specific link hinting at the abstinence-only programming yes. that we talked about earlier that specifically talks about their claims versus the facts. Yes, that one's very important, and I'm really glad we have that document. Today, we covered a lot of information, and it obviously seems like a lot, but the simple summary is this, okay? Indiana is failing its youth and its adults by refusing to give factual and adequate education to its students. Absolutely. Overall, the most important takeaway is what I said earlier. Everyone is in the audience. Remember that everyone deserves conscientious and comprehensive access to education, resources, and healthcare. Yeah, but what did we miss in this episode, okay? Do you have questions for us or do you want to point out something we forgot? I want to invite everybody to take part in this conversation because it's so important that we make sure everybody gets this info. Right. So you can always find us on Twitter or Instagram at sjed underscore IUPUI, on Facebook as Social Justice Education IUPUI, or use our hashtag, hash it out IUPUI. All of those details are available in the description below, along with our recommended reading. Let us know what you think. And stay tuned for our next episode releasing November 10th. But that's it for today, y'all. Thanks for listening, and we hope to hear from you soon. See you next time.